my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the UK politician whose likeness was hung and burnt at a bonfire, causing her to feel physically sick. The politician is Naomi Long from the Alliance Party in Northern Ireland, which might explain why the British press pretty much ignored the story. But unless we speak out against these hate crimes, those responsible might get the message that somehow it's okay. And clearly it isn't. First, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscribers to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper edited by Hardeep Matharu. We report without fear or favour and hold the rich and the powerful to account because our funding comes from ordinary readers taking out subscriptions to the Byline Times. Please subscribe if you can. It's a great read and you're helping us to stay on air as well. You'll get subscription details at our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. Now let's return to a story that we've previously covered on this podcast, the hanging and burning of effigies of politicians in Northern Ireland. This happened in the build-up to the 11th night when the loyalist community hold bonfires to mark the glorious 12th of July, which marks the Protestant ascendancy, the victory of King Billy, William of Orange, over the Catholic King James at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. Now, John Kyle, who's a local councillor in a working class district of Belfast, a loyalist stronghold, if you like, told us that the burning of effigies was tantamount to a hate crime. Let's hear now from Naomi Long, leader of the Alliance Party and Minister for Justice in Northern Ireland's Legislative Assembly. She was one of those whose effigy was hung and burnt. Naomi, welcome along. Uh, Hello, how are you? Uh, It's nice to speak to you, Naomi. Just talk me through how you became aware that your effigy was being hung and being readied for burning at one of Mm. these bonfires. Well, I suppose the odd thing about this is that I kind of thought um, I was almost immune um, to any kind of impact of of these kinds of events because um, over a period of time, I have seen my election posters and things burned on bonfires for many years. Not pleasant, um, but it's something that has become a a kind of almost a tradition now um, in, in certain places where they're actually stolen um, off the uh, lampposts during election campaigns um, and then placed on bonfires for burning. So I thought nothing of this nature would actually impact me at all. Um, But when I saw the three effigies, there was myself um, and both Mary Lou MacDonald and um, Michelle O'Neill, both Sinn Féin politicians, um, hanging an effigy on a bonfire juxtaposed with what was supposed to be a family fun day in front of it. So you've small children kind of playing in the foreground, you know, bouncy castles and all the rest of it. And then you have these living people, you know, not historic figures, but living people with families of their own, with, you know, friends and so on, um, basically hanged from, from mock gallows on this bonfire to be burned. I I felt physically sick because in some ways there is a a presumption with the posters. It's a sort of a late addition. They tend to be put up as the kind of last thing to go up. Um, And it's a fairly easy thing to do to get a bit of a reaction from people. 
But there's a degree of premeditation and effort that goes into creating an effigy of someone and creating fake gallows to put on the bonfire and suspend that person by the neck from that. And that level of hatred, just even in Northern Ireland context, um, particularly, I think, in more recent times, I, I, I found genuinely quite disturbing. But I found it particularly disturbing that parents felt okay about bringing their children to you know, a family fun day in the shadow of that. It was almost medieval. Um, you know, you've, you, you have these effigies hanging on, you know, on by the noose um, from, from gallows on a fire to be burned. And you have children and the local community gathering around it and having a, a kind of a carnival. It just felt to me um, completely um, out of touch with what the rest of Northern Ireland feels like, but also... As I say, it felt like a very directed, very hate-filled um, message that, that was being sent to those of us who are politicians. And I have said previously that I think that some of the things that are placed on bonfires are completely unacceptable and need to be addressed. Um, and we've done a lot of work, both when I was a Belfast City Councillor um, and also as a member of the Assembly, in order to try to work with those for whom this cultural celebration is an important event to try to find ways that we can ensure, first of all, that bonfires are safe. Because these are massive structures. I mean, one of the bonfires in, in North Antrim, um, in Larne, was one of the biggest bonfires ever to be built anywhere in the world. It won't get a recognition from the Guinness Book of World Records because they're illegal. Um, but it, it's one of the biggest to be constructed anywhere in the world. We know the danger of that either collapsing on people who are there to see it, it, they're often built in built-up areas, so they pose a risk to neighbouring property. And tragically, this year, somebody fell from one of the bonfires um, who was there constructing it, fell off the bonfire to his death, um, leaving behind a partner and two small children. So me, we want them to be safe. That's the first thing. Um, we want the kind of dangerous um, materials to be removed. So things like burning tyres, burning white goods, you know, burning things that will cause serious toxic impacts to the environment. Um, and we want bonfire builders to be responsible and cooperate with councils in terms of the removal. Because, of course, the other kind of sinister element of this is that if councils or legal authorities go in to try to move, remove any of the material, then they find themselves under threat of violence. And so there is an intimidating atmosphere surrounding um, some of these events, um, not all of them by any means, but some of them. And the third part of it was that we want people to transition away from the kind of sectarian um, and kind of not, I, I suppose, the, the kind of um, anti-Catholic, anti-Irish um, kind of approach that's part of the fires. Um, some have done that really successfully. So we saw some really good examples last week in places like Clandy Boy, where lots of people from right across all parts of the community came together. They had a beacon and they had other festivities going on and it was very much a village festival and everyone was happy. Others will be well managed in open spaces and so on, but there are a number that have been really problematic. One in my constituency where some pretty vile things were placed on the bonfire, including things like um, the rather um, 
the rather obnoxious phrase, all tags are targets, basically a threat against all Catholics. Um, you know, I, I mean, that was on a placard at a bonfire where, again, there was a community fun day associated. Now, some of my constituents who went to the bonfire that morning or that afternoon with their children for the fun day saw what was on the bonfire and left and didn't go back. Um, there was a placard saying um, that Michelle O'Neill was, and you'll excuse my language, a Fenian slut. You know, really misogynistic, really sectarian and really degrading um, comments. And so there were people who walked away and didn't want any part of it. There were election posters of myself and my colleagues and so on on that bonfire as well. But the one, as I say, in Carrickfergus was the one with the effigies. And I just, I mean, this is not unique. It has happened before and I have condemned it. But I think there was something about three women being hanged on a bonfire in that way at what was meant to be a community celebration that really jarred with people. And I mean, I have to say that I've received a huge amount of support um, from right across the community, but also from right across these islands, because people who have heard about it actually couldn't understand for the life of them why somebody who represents a cross-community political party would be being subjected um, to that kind of really vile hatred and abuse. Oh, I wanted to ask you about that, Naomi, because it is always unacceptable and I'm not making any attempt to justify or excuse the hanging of the effigies of Michelle O'Neill and Mary Lou Macdonald. They represent the Sinn Féin party. They aren't nationalists. It's wrong when it relates to them. But your party is avowedly not sectarian. So why do you think you were targeted? Well, I mean, first of all, to put on record, I mean, irrespective of which politician is subjected to this, it's wrong. I mean, you yeah. know, Doug Beatty, um, the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, was recently, um, one of his election posters was taken and defaced um, to look as though he was being hanged by his neck with a noose. And, you know, I condemned that. Um, and again, that was a threat from within loyalism. Um, and, you know, I just think that that kind of, hatred being directed at anyone is just unacceptable, particularly when it's on display in a public space. But I think the reasons are complex. I mean, some of it is uh, there is a historic issue around the flying of the Union flag in City Hall, where my party supported designated days, um, as outlined by the UK government. Unionists wanted every day, um, nationalists wanted no days, um, and we supported um, what we felt was, based on the legal advice and the equality impact assessment, the right course of action. And in the end, it was the one that carried with the support of nationalist parties who abandoned um, their, their attempt to get the flag removed completely. Um, and I went through, I suppose, four years as an MP of um, hell, uh, with protests at my office on a daily basis, with death threats, with hoax devices left outside my office, with death threats being phoned in on a regular basis um, and death threats against um, me at my home um, and general intimidation when I would go out to do constituency surgeries and everything else. And really, since that time, there has been an increase in prevalence of Alliance posters going on bonfires. It's the mindset of if you're not 
for us, you're against us. So the presumption is because we aren't a unionist or a nationalist party, that we're anti-unionist. You know, and, and to me, that makes no sense because we're not. We are neutral on the constitutional question and we're focused on trying to build a shared community in Northern Ireland. But for people, I think, who perhaps feel um, that they are under pressure, that they are um, in some way in a siege mentality, if you take a neutral standpoint, they see you as a traitor. Um, as somebody who can't be trusted. And I have been on many occasions the lightning conductor for some of that anger, um, even before I was the party leader, largely because, like John Kyle, I represent a constituency which is predominantly historically unionist, though now mainly alliance, um, and because I come from a traditional working class loyalist stroke unionist background. Mm. Um, but that isn't my politics um, and, and never really has been. So I think for those two reasons, I, I you know, your your listeners may not be familiar with the story of the siege of Derry and the role of Lundy and all of that. But it's a it's another word for traitor in Northern Ireland. If you're a Lundy, if you're somebody who from within um, is seen as a threat to the community. And I guess that for some, that's how they see me, because I haven't followed the normal path. Um, of people who would have grown up in my community um, and become a unionist um, or a loyalist, um, that I believe that actually we need to work together in Northern Ireland to build a better future and that we need to do that by reaching out across the community and focusing on those issues that are shared. Things like we're dealing with at the moment, cost of living crisis, problems with our health service, to me are the things that motivate me in politics. And I think some people struggle to reconcile that with the fact I came from quite a loyalist background. Mm, yeah, because you are seen as one of their own, as it were, and you do represent Belfast East as a member yep. of the Northern Ireland Assembly. That's seen as in some ways being worse than if you were, in inverted commas, an outsider. As you mentioned, perhaps as well, if I was a Catholic or a nationalist, they would say, well, you would understand those politics, yeah, yeah. but they can't comprehend the fact that somebody from within the unionist community might take a different view. And yet it's increasing common now for people, as I say, any Belfast um, Alliance polled more votes than the DUP, for example, um, in the most, we're now the largest party in East Belfast um, in the recent assembly elections, because more and more people in Northern Ireland see that this constant division, this constant necessity to take sides, to frame everything around the constitutional question, is holding back social progress. It's holding us back from tackling the big issues that impact on people's lives. It's holding us back from being able to build a better and more optimistic future um, for our young people. And people see that. Um, and I think are responding very much to Alliance's pragmatic, um, community-focused kind of politics. And I think that also riles people because then they they're more angry. If we, if we took a different view and were unsuccessful in doing so, they'd be less interested. But when we have success, um, that really annoys people because they see that our message is cutting through and that more and more people can see the benefits of trying to work on a cross-community basis rather than forever as two opposing tribes. Hmm. I mentioned that John Carl did 
unequivocally condemn the hanging of effigies. But I thought he was a useful voice to hear from and an intelligent voice talking about the frustrations within the loyalist community, which appear to have risen quite considerably since the introduction of the Northern Ireland Protocol. What impact do you think that has had on the politics of Northern Ireland? And is it a contributory factor to these horrible hanging of the effigies of you and other politicians? Well, the the effigies and the image burnings have gone on long before this. And if it wasn't effigies of politicians and the burning of our images, it was often things like burning um, flags, Irish flags, um, GAA flags, Celtic shirts, um, and, you know, even sometimes um, icons from from the Catholic Church. Um, So things like that would would be burned. And and in in August, there will be a small number because things have changed quite dramatically within nationalism, but there will be a small number of Republican bonfires and you will see exactly the same kind of stuff happening on those um, fairly extreme views being expressed, burning of Union flags, burning of the Northern Ireland flag. Um, you know, some fairly vile stuff in the past said about prison officers and police officers who had been murdered um, by Republicans. So, you know, this is not a, a this is not a, a one a one community issue. This is something across Northern Ireland. But I suppose the reason it gets such prominence in July is that the, the number of bonfires is much greater um, in July than August. Um, and so it, it gets much more attention. Um, in terms of the condemnation, the condemnation, you know, was entirely across the community. You know, Mervyn Gibson from the Orange Order condemned it um, and said the effigy shouldn't be burned. Um, loyalist commentators condemned it. Um, and so there was widespread condemnation. The difficulty is that their condemnation is never matched by leadership. There is no one within unionism or loyalism willing to go in at the time and say, no, that shouldn't be there. Take it down or remove it. And it's left for the police, the statutory authorities where it's on their land or whomever it may be to then kind of do battle, a running battle with the community to try to deal with these issues the leadership required if you like at political level always comes afterwards when it's too late in the form of condemnation it's not coming at the beginning when intervention could prevent it happening and I suppose that that's what I would like to see and that's what I'm aiming to do is to work with other parties and we have an executive memorandum of understanding group working around the issue of bonfires and I would like to see unionist um, ministers engaged in that process so that we can show collective leadership about what is acceptable and what is not um, and acknowledge that there are some things that we can collectively say it's just completely unacceptable. And where we see that, we will say so, not just after the event, but at the time. There are a couple of things I would say about the protocol and the Good Friday Agreement. First of all, the protocol is not a threat to the Good Friday Agreement. It is a cack-handed attempt by this government um, and the European Union to try to protect the Good Friday Agreement. It isn't something that I supported because I felt that it was clumsy um, and clunky in terms of its operation, but it was better than some of the alternatives that were being postulated, like a no-deal Brexit um, or Northern Ireland entirely leaving the single market and the customs union, which would have caused major disruption. So 
I'm not a fan of the protocol as it stands, but what I want to see in terms of resolution is an agreed solution with the European Union. And I believe that that is achievable based on our engagement with Maros Shevkovic um, and others who are negotiating that. I think the difficulty is that whilst the pragmatic elements of the protocol, so issues around the movement of goods from, you know, from England to Northern Ireland, um, could be resolved by the European Union. This has now been elevated to a constitutional issue by unionist politicians. I don't think that's reflected, if you like, in the priorities that people have on the ground. If you, during the election, people were polled repeatedly um, and only a very small percentage of unionists or loyalists put the protocol as one of their top three issues in the election. So the idea that this is a attention raiser in wider unionism, this is a massive issue in wider unionism, that people in Northern Ireland of the unionist persuasion are losing sleep over the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice is an absolute nonsense and a lie that is being perpetuated by a UK government that actually, I think, enjoys conflict with the European Union as part of the way of shoring up support um, in Brexit-leaning constituencies. Mm. So I think some of this is manufactured conflict that the government is quite happy with. Some of it is manufactured con conflict that I think, while some unionist politicians are definitely reflecting frustration within the community, if you look at the majority of businesses, including agri-foods, they would all say none of them want the protocol scrapped. What they want is for it to be adjusted in agreement with the EU so they know where they're going next. So I think within certain parts of loyalism, particularly the more extreme elements, this has become a rallying call. But I'm not sure that the anger that is being displayed by those small groups of people is reflective of the views of the wider unionist community. Nothing we have seen to date, nothing we have heard to date from people like the UFU, the, the kind of dairy farmers, um, agri-foods processors, other businesses um, would reflect that. And also the protocol offers Northern Ireland Yes, challenges, but also opportunities. We have unfettered access into the EU market from Northern Ireland and into the GB market. So we are a prime location for any international company that wants to set up somewhere in Europe and be able to trade with the UK and with the EU. Well, you can do that from Northern Ireland unfettered unrestricted. Now, that is a massive selling point for Northern Ireland, an economy that has lagged behind the rest of the UK for many, many years. This is our opportunity to build a stronger economy and to make a, a more viable contribution in terms of, of the economic success of the UK. And yet we're being deprived from doing that because the government are removing any certainty around how the protocol may operate in the future. So businesses won't invest in that basis. But even as it is with all that uncertainty, you know, just as one example, you know, 40 odd new jobs created in Uri providing um, food to Asda stores because they can no longer bring products from England to Northern Ireland, but they can commission product from Northern Ireland, high quality produce that can then be sold in Asda stores all over Europe and all over GB. So mm. that's an opportunity for Northern Ireland to grow our market, to grow our businesses and our exports. And we're being deprived, as I say, of opportunities to, to expand on that. So the protocol is imperfect. But the real problem in terms of the stability of the union is Brexit. 
Brexit was largely an English nationalism-driven project. And as a result, it completely disregarded the overwhelming views of people in Scotland and Northern Ireland, which was that we wanted to remain in the European Union. In any family, you know, if two people in the family want to go and see one movie and two people in the family want to go and see another movie, the answer to that is not to drag everybody to the movie that one group want to see. The answer to that is to come up with a solution that everybody can live with. And the government failed to do that in that it went for the hardest possible Brexit. It went for the most disruptive form of Brexit. um, And it ignored appeals from Scotland and Northern Ireland to consider things like remaining in the customs union, remaining in the single market, but removing ourselves from some of the other things. So, you know, the problem is Brexit. The protocol is, I think, a poor fix but the only one available at the time. And I think that the government now need essentially to stop with the protocol bill, to stop with unilateral action and threats of unilateral action and focus on building trust because essentially the solution to the issues around the protocol lie with the government being able to say to the European Union, genuinely, you can devolve the security of the European single market to us And we will make sure that nothing that doesn't meet your standards crosses into that, into the the single market. That's essentially how it works. But why would anyone trust this government? I mean, members of this government don't even trust other members of this government. The country doesn't trust the government. You know, we have a prime minister who is leaving because he's no longer trusted by his party colleagues. So how on earth do you build a trust with the European Union to say, we don't need to check every parcel. We need to check one in a hundred to make sure that the rules are being complied with. You can trust us. Well, they can't. So we need to build trust. And that means working in partnership with the European Union rather than in conflict. Um, And that, to me, would be the best solution. But I have to say, I think Brexit, we warned before Brexit that it would be a disruptor to the stability of the United Kingdom. I think it has proven to be so. Um, I think the Scottish Scottish independence movement has been, in many ways, bolstered um, by Brexit um, in terms of its opposition to what's happening in Westminster. And actually, I think Irish nationalism, to some degree, has received a kind of shot in the arm because... You know, people in Northern Ireland genuinely, even those who are unionist, many of them feel that they're being deprived of an opportunity to be part of something bigger um, and to be part of the European Union and make a contribution in that way. So, you know, I, I think the Brexit is the fundamental issue. But of course, the DUP and unionist politicians will never acknowledge that because they were pro-Brexit <laughs> and it was their desire to see the hardest possible Brexit that actually ended up with the protocol being the outcome because they removed every other possible solution off the table when Theresa May was prime minister. And so we ended up with Boris's oven-ready Brexit, which turned out, unsurprisingly, to be a bit of a turkey. Naomi, thank you so much for your time. That's Naomi Long, leader of the Alliance Party, Minister for Justice in Northern Ireland's Legislative Assembly. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. You can find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. We'll see you again soon. Bye now.